Let us pray. Father, your word says to us that it is sharper than any two-edged sword. We can't really imagine what that's like. So we ask, Father, that you might bring to us your word today and that we may clearly understand it. We pray, Father, that you might uh, speak also through Duncan as he comes, that your word may, may come not from him, but directly from you. For your word is truth. And we pray that it may be expounded and we may hear that truth this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 11 from verse 1. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again I asked, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I am talking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief. And you stand by faith. 
Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Friends, another uh, really in, uh, in, in, incredible kind of passage here from Romans. Let's pray again. I think we need to pray again as we look at Romans 11, and then we'll uh, draw some threads out from this really wonderful passage. Let's pray. Father, we do pray now as we uh, come to think about your word as it's written to us in the letter to the Romans. We uh, thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for the glorious gospel that he has written about uh, in this letter, and we thank you for the way that you have brought us to yourself and by your spirit have opened our eyes to see the truth of your gospel. Uh, we pray, we thank you uh, for those of us here um, for whom that's true. We pray for those who have not yet uh, seen the truth of your word. Please soften our hearts before you. And for all of us, Father, please may we leave today um, changed by your wonderful life-giving gospel. And we pray that for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, one of the things that makes any relationship work is trust, right? One of the things that makes a relationship work is trust. It's been a little while since I've shown a Charlie Brown cartoon. I don't think I've shown one all year, so I thought it was about time. And you'll know, if, you, if, you read, if you've read the Charlie Brown cartoons, you'll know there's this series, this running gag through them. Uh, every year there'd be one, one cartoon that was put out. There's a running gag between Charlie and his friend Lucy. Um, 
Ichi Lucy offers to hold the ball for Charlie and then pulls away at the last minute. Right, if you're familiar with the cartoons, a few nodding heads, you know that sort of happens all the way through. What makes the running gag so tragically funny is that Charlie keeps falling for it every time. So he tries to fool Lucy, or he thinks that she's not going to pull the ball away this time, but he doesn't learn his lesson. Uh, and so you can see there she's asking him to uh, have a go at the, kicking the ball. And she, if you can't read it, I'll read it out for you. She says, how about it, Charlie Brown? I'll hold the ball. You come running up and kick it. Charlie Brown says, boy, it really aggravates me the way you think I'm so stupid. Lucy says, I guarantee that the only thing that will make me pull the ball away this year will be an involuntary muscle spasm. Lucy says, now you certainly will agree that the odds must be astronomical against such an involuntary muscle spasm occurring at the very moment that you try to kick the ball. Charlie Brown says, she's right. This year has to be the year I kick that old ball. So here I go. And of course, she pulls it away, he goes flying, womp on the ground, and then Lucy says at the end, I've looked it up, Charlie Brown, the actual odds against such an involuntary muscle spasm occurring at that precise moment were 10 billion to one. <laughs> uh, I, I find it funny. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it raises this whole issue of uh, kind of trust, right? Um, and, and, you know, Charlie Brown's tra tragic because he keeps trusting that he, he, <laughs> Lucy's not going to pull away. She, he, he, she keeps doing it. But, of course, we all know that trust goes deeper than games that kids play, right? It goes much deeper than that. And lots of us will have our own experience with this and different kind of um, feelings and history will come up when we talk about trust and relationships, uh, the, the kind of long-term hurts that can be left by... The breaking of trust can be just really deep for us and kind of raw and difficult to talk about. Big, on the big scale, uh, you know, in terms of governments promising lots and delivering uh, little, but uh, probably more um, personal and raw and meaningful to us are the, on the small scale breakages of trust that we all kind of experience, that we all know something about to different degrees. Uh, and, and if you're kind of following along here, you'll know that uh, trust in someone else gets kind of undermined by past experience. That's why Charlie Brown's so tragic, right? He should have known not to trust old Lucy. But trust gets kind of chipped away at by past experience. If I've broken a promise to you in the past, you're going to be less likely to uh, believe me and trust me right now, right? Well, friends, this issue of trust... Uh, it's really underlying, a, a kind of underlying driving force behind these few chapters of Romans that we've been looking at over the last few weeks. We've seen it uh, already. If you were here a couple of weeks ago when we restarted looking at Romans, we, we kind of jumped in at Romans 9, had a brief tour through the first eight chapters again, just to refresh our memories, and we saw that huge picture of what God is doing in the world through Jesus, this spectacular picture of the gospel, that as humanity we are in a dark pit of our own making, that all of us without exception have rejected God on our own uh, and we can't get right by ourselves. We sit under God's judgment and we cannot make it right. Uh, but the gospel that Paul has so beautifully written for us is about how God has done what we can never do for ourselves, what God, how, what God has done through Jesus how he has given us righteousness as a free gift to everyone who believes. And then we saw at the end of chapter 8 these huge promises, right? 
if you're joined to Christ through faith, nothing can ever separate you from God's love. This kind of overwhelming, huge mountain peak of uh, Romans, this incredible promise that he gives us. And then a couple of weeks ago in chapter 9, we saw this huge shift, right, in Paul's tone. He, he ends chapter 8 with this great um, glory to God sort of moment. And then he starts chapter 9 and there's this massive shift in his tone and he talks about how grieved he is for Israel, for his people Israel. Friends, lots of, uh, lots of people don't quite know what to do with these chapters, right, from chapter 9 through to chapter 11. Um, uh, if you've read Romans before, if you're kind of familiar with it, it can kind of feel like, uh, it can kind of feel like um, you, you, you should be able to just jump straight from chapter 8 over to chapter 12 and miss out. I mean, you'd miss out a few weird things about predestination and, um, and evangelism and, and uh, Israel, but basically you can kind of jump straight to chapter 12. Um, I can kind of understand that on one level, but I want to suggest... Uh, that these chapters are exciting and they're vitally important to Paul's letter, this letter to the Romans. Uh, and it's all tied up with this issue of trust. Paul wants to, wants to once and for all clear away a huge barrier to God's people trusting his word. This, this message that we heard in Romans 1-8 to that ended with those huge promises. Paul wants to just absolutely clear away the big objection to people believing that, the big objection that was uh, when Romans was written. Uh, We saw that a few weeks ago in chapter 9. This issue was huge for the first Christians. The whole question of Israel, right, the people of God in the Old Testament, and how they fit into God's plans now that Jesus has come. Now that Jesus has come as the fulfilment of the whole Old Testament, What's the deal with these pe- the people of Israel? The real troubling thing was the fact that, on the whole, Israel had rejected Jesus. They, they had not recognised their Messiah, the one who was promised to them. They would re- turned away from him on the whole. Most of the people of Israel, this nation, right, that were chosen by God, uh, this nation chosen by God to carry on his promises to bring his blessing to the world, most of them uh, rejected him when God's fullness, the fullness of God's plans came in Jesus. We saw that in chapter 9. So if you go to the next slide, we looked at uh, Israel's fall, this, this whole issue of Israel sort of rejecting Jesus, the Messiah who came. And Paul's really clear in chapter 9, just because that's happened doesn't mean at all that we can't trust God. Just because that's happened, it doesn't mean at all that you can't trust God. God is sovereign. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll remember, uh, hopefully just being really struck by chapter 9, this huge picture of the sovereignty of God. God sovereignly chooses his people, and he always has. God is still on his throne, and no matter what things look like, uh, he's working his good purposes out. Uh, God is sovereign overall. But then we moved on to chapter 10. Uh, and the, the kind of, if you remember last week, we talked there about the billy cart going down the hill, uh, God's sovereignty on one hand and God, our responsibility on the other, and you've kind of got to hold them both in tension. 
to go down the, go the right way. You can't let go of one or the other. Chapter 10, if you go to the next slide, uh, we, we, saw, we talked about not only Israel's fall, but Israel's fault. So the other side of it, in this mysterious way we can't fully understand, uh, Israel were responsible for their rejection of God, for their going after Remember we, last week we looked at this, how they went after righteousness as if it were by works, as if it were by the law. They were responsible for that, going through the law and not through faith. God's wonderful gospel is offered freely and anyone can receive it. Anyone can believe it in their heart and confess it with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and they will be saved. Israel and anyone else. All of us are responsible if we reject this gospel. So the Israelites couldn't kind of wag their finger at God and say, you didn't choose me, so it's your fault, right? Uh, Israel's fall, it doesn't, it doesn't sort of compromise, it shouldn't make us not trust God, he's sovereign, but their, their fall is also their fault. But Paul knows that that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. He knows that you could get this far and think that you kind of, if you're travelling along his train of thought, you could get this far and think, well, has God just got it in for Israel now? Has he kind of got some sort of vendetta against it? Has he, uh, maybe God's got some agenda against them? Maybe they're, actually, maybe Israel are now in a worse position than everyone else because God's kind of positively rejected them. Well, to think that for Paul couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, Paul knows that God has not rejected his people. He has plans for, to, for their continued fullness. So that's kind of where chapter 11 fits in. It's a pretty dense chapter, right? And you probably picked that up as we read through. There's lots in there. It is a pretty dense chapter. There's, and it's also um, important to say that there is a fair bit of disagreement about very, certain parts of this chapter. So different people will think pretty strongly about different things through the chapter. I'm going to teach what I think it says, but it's worth being aware that there's other kind of good-hearted and very smart people who think differently from me at certain points. So just keep that in mind as we travel through. Um, but at the same time, it'd be, I think it would be a real shame for the kind of tricky bits in this chapter, the more difficult parts of it, it would be a shame for them to get in the way of the main thing that I think that Paul's getting at as we read through. Whatever else we make of these chapters, Paul wants us to end reading this chapter, and in fact, reading all of Romans 9 to 11, he wants us to end uh, with where he ends at the end of this chapter. Um, he wants us to end with those verses at the end of chapter 11, with wonder and thanks and awe and soft hearts. He wants us to come away with this big view of our awesome God, I'm going to read those verses as we start because that's kind of a good place to start and we'll finish at the end. I'm going to ask us all to read them together. But for now, uh, Paul, this is, this is what Paul wants for us as we travel through these chapters, this big view of God that is totally trustworthy and faithful to his purposes and plans. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. 
To him be the glory forever. Amen. We'll turn to that later on. My friends, if you have got your, um, your Bibles there and maybe a bit of a handout that'll help you sort of navigate your way through. Obviously, with such a big chapter, we're not going to be able to kind of go into detail about lots of the, lots of the bits of it, but hopefully this will be a helpful thing to do also to see the full sweep of this chapter together. Uh, if we can go back to where we were up to on those slides, that'd be good. So has God rejected Israel? And Paul says, by no means. Uh, you see that at the start of chapter 11, he asks, did God reject his people? By no means. And and it's, uh, it's kind of like, have you ever used yourself as proof for something? Paul does that. He, he, he puts himself forward as proof for why God hasn't rejected Israel. And he says, basically, uh, you couldn't get a more serious and true, blue, orthodox Jewish person than me, says Paul. Um, if God had some agenda against the Israelites, Paul himself would never have been included in this family of God. There's no agenda against. So has God rejected him? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. But then in verse 2, he goes back to this really powerful... Oh, we can flick... Sorry, if we can flick back in the slides. We're not up to these ones yet. Um, in, in verse... Yeah, just, uh, we'll just leave it there for a moment. I'll tell you when to go on. Thanks, mate. Uh, in verse 2, um, if you've got your Bibles there, he, he, he has this... Uh, he, he goes back to this really, in, uh, this really powerful story from the Old Testament about Elijah, right? Uh, and he shows here that God's always been working this way. He's always been working this way. If you know the story, Elijah, one of, the, one of God's prophets back in the Old Testament, uh, Elijah was, he, he came at a time when it seemed like everyone was rejecting God. It seemed like oh, everyone had turned away from trusting in God. It seemed like he was the only one left. And he has this moment of despair. He kind of cries out to God. He says, God, what's going on? I'm the only one left here. Everyone else has left. And not only that, but they're trying to kill me too. Uh, and if I die, the only faithful Israelite left, then what's going to happen, God, to your promises to your people? What's going to happen to what you said about your blessings spreading out to the whole world through Israel? If I die, what's going to happen then? And it's kind of like God comes back at Elijah and um, sort of, you know, you know he, he comes back and says, come on, mate, I mean, do you have such a small view of me? This is kind of what God says to Elijah. Do you have such a small view of me? Just because you can't see what I'm doing doesn't mean that I'm not doing anything. Don't assume that I'm not doing anything. I'm still on the throne. I'm still working my purposes out. I haven't forgotten my people. You think you're, you're the only one left? I've reserved for, I have reserved for myself 7,000 others who you don't know about. Right, I'm doing my own thing with them. You're not the only one left. I've reserved 7,000 other people who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. So Paul says in verse 5, if you have your Bibles there after... Thinking about that story, he says, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. This remnant, this kind of small group within the bigger group, a remnant chosen by grace. And it's the same thing, Paul's already talked about this back in chapter 9. I don't know if you remember this, but he said, he talked in chapter 9 about there being an Israel within Israel, like the, the faithful Israel within the bigger 
nation of Israel. It's the same thing going on here. There's a spiritual Israel within the physical Israel. Uh, and, he, and it links back to, linking back to everything he wrote last chapter in chapter 10 about righteousness that comes simply by trusting and not by working, righteousness through faith. He writes in verse 6 that if it's by grace, then it can't be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. So this whole physical people of Israel, they so earnestly sought after righteousness, and Paul says, we looked at this again last week, Paul says they didn't obtain it, but what they didn't obtain, because they were trying to do it by works, the elect did, the ones God chose did. Uh, The elect, the spiritual remnant, uh, obtained it, but the others didn't, and they tried to pursue it by themselves. Uh, that's basically, I think, what those, if you're looking at the Bible verses in verses 8 to 10, that's kind of what they're getting at. Paul's saying, you get all this in the Old Testament, right? Basically, all of this is, it's not a new thing. You get it all in the Old Testament. This idea of a faithful remnant, this elect people chosen by grace, while the rest of the, God's people, Israel, are hardened. They have eyes that can't see, they have ears that can't hear. And they'll rightly face God's judgment. So has God rejected his people? Israel, no way, is basically Paul's answer. No way. Just like with Elijah, he's still got faithful Israelites, like Paul. People that God has chosen by his grace from the people of Israel. That's the case when Paul's writing this. And basically as he goes on, this next kind of the rest of this chapter basically what he then will go on to say is that's what what that's what it's like when he's writing it but that's what it'll always be like into the future god is opening up the gospel god opened up the gospel to the world but that didn't leave israel behind they are a part of his people by grace through faith just like abraham was like the true israel have always been And the Gentiles coming in, being included in God's people, doesn't change that. So this this next little part, um, if you have it there in front of you, this long kind of section in the rest of chapter 11, it is pretty dense, there's a complex few paragraphs, but there's a basic line of thought, I think, through it all. And this has really helped me to get my head around what's going on in these these paragraphs. Maybe it will for you too. Uh, It all has to do with this ongoing place of Israel. What's the deal with Israel now in God's plans, now that Jesus has come? He's got three main stages through this whole section uh, and that kind of reflects, he reflects on this. And um, I think, I'm hopeful that having this in mind will help you to just get a bit of a, a better grasp of this dense kind of passage. So he talks about these three stages. The first one is that Israel is hardened, Israel themselves, and we kind of have read that, this hardening of Israel, uh, this rejecting of the Messiah on the whole by the people of Israel. Um, That brought about, and you read this, this kind of just follows the story of Acts, the spread of the church, right, that goes out. You read this, the next stage that happens, Israel's hardened, and the Gentiles are brought in, the nations are brought in by grace. Uh, The nations are brought in. And then what Paul goes on to say throughout this, he has this strange kind of thing. You notice that as we read through it. He he talks about the Israelites looking at the Gentiles who've been brought in and kind of getting envious about it, but getting jealous 
um, about, uh, about the Israelites being there, uh, about the Gentiles being part of the people of God. Israel is made jealous and kind of brought back into the people of God. Um, he's using these words, Israel and the Gentiles or the nations, he's using them kind of to talk about the groups on the whole, right? The kind of, he's not saying that every single um, Israelite and every single Gentile, but he's using them sort of in corporate kind of ways, Israel on the whole, Gentiles as a whole. Uh, but sometimes he says Israel, sometimes he says Israel and he means the whole people, the whole ethnic kind of group. Sometimes... Uh, he, he uses it to mean that smaller Israel within the bigger Israel, the elect Israel. Um, it's important later on, I think. Uh, and, and so if we sort of change it from there, yeah, um, Israel is hardened. Uh, the elect from the nations are brought in by grace and the elect from Israel are made jealous and brought back. The key thing here, friends, this is where... This, uh, I know it's, there's a lot to take in here, but I think this is important. The key thing is here... Uh, for Paul, this isn't actually a sequence, so it's not like one happens completely, then the next one happens completely, then the third one happens completely. Uh, for Paul, if you go to the next one, it's more like this. It's a kind of continuous cycle, something that's happening all the time for Paul. Um, it's a cycle. He sees this happening all the time, the hardening of Israel, the, the bringing in of the nations by grace, and the Israelites being sort of brought to jealousy and being brought back in through faith in Jesus. And you see that in verse 11. as you, uh, uh, Paul says in verse 11, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? So he's saying, are they without hope? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, that's stage one, Israel is hardened. Because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, stage two, to make Israel envious, stage three, in verse 12. But their transgression, stage one, means riches for the world, stage two. And their loss means riches for the Gentiles. How much greater riches will their full inclusion, or literally will their fullness bring? And that's, that's stage three. See this sort of cycle that Paul sees happening all the time now that Jesus has come. All right, you get that kind of through the rest of it. Um, Paul talks a little bit about taking pride in his ministry to the Gentiles. He, he, he went out to the world to bring the gospel to them. He takes pride in it. He kind of big notes himself for it so that his fellow Israelites would look at that and get jealous over it and come back to God. But the image that kind of dominates, if you read it through, is this image of the olive tree. Uh, this olive, uh, this great sort of olive tree. That's uh, it's, if you kind of like imagine that God's people are like a, a tree. This olive tree. Um, the roots are like the very first people God chose: Abraham, uh, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, the first people of God um, in, back in Genesis, and and the natural branches are the people of Israel. They kind of naturally flow out of that those roots. Um, they had all the promises, right? They had everything in the Old Testament, all the signs that point to Jesus. Um, but these natural branches were hardened because of their unbelief and tragically they were broken off. And in their place, God has grafted in the Gentiles. And you notice what he calls the Gentiles? Uh, presumably that's most of us here if you're not a Jewish person. 
Um, he calls the Gentiles, these non-Jews, wild shoots. Basically, he calls them weeds, right? Um, so if you're not a Jewish believer in Jesus, that's what you are, right? a weed that's sort of been plucked out from somewhere random and grafted in to the true olive tree. Uh, Paul says, uh, Paul's going to go on to say more here and we're going to just sort of pause on that and come back at the end. But basically he's driving at the fact that if, if God in his grace can take wild weeds, right, like you and me, if he can take wild weeds and graft you and me into his great tree, his great tree of his people, by his kindness and grace, it'd be ridiculous to, to think that he can't do the same thing with the natural branches that have been sort of broken off. Of course he can graft them back in. Of course he can. The Jewish people, with all their history and every, all their... Um, all the law and the sacrificial system, the temple, all, all, that make, all of that that was pointing towards Jesus, it would make it the most natural thing in the world once they saw who Jesus was to sort of be regrafted back in. So he uses this image of an olive tree. Uh, and then in, down in verse 25, he switches to talk about this mystery, right? This mystery. Uh, and he's speaking to the, the, the weeds now. Um, he's speaking to Gentile Christians like you and me. Uh, and he says here, he, he doesn't want any of us to be ignorant about this mystery so that we wouldn't become conceited, wouldn't become proud, puffed up. Uh, we wouldn't say, you can see in verse 19, we wouldn't say, well, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. I mean, can you imagine uh, a weed that's been grafted into the true vine boasting about that. It's ridiculous, right? Uh, and this is, friends, this last little kind of bit um, is where a lot of the controversy and disagreement comes in. What's Paul going on about here? What's this mystery he's talking about? He says, Israel has experienced, this is down in uh, verse 25, Israel has experienced a hardening in parts until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved. Uh, there's been basically two different ways to understand what Paul's getting at here. The, one of them um, is to, to think that what Paul's saying is there's going to be some kind of large-scale future conversion of Jewish people uh, in the future at some point. It's kind of at the end of the age or something like that. Some large-scale events where either... Lots and lots of Jewish people, or even the whole nation, are converted and brought to faith in Jesus. It's pretty popular in some areas, especially from what I understand in America, um, where, from what I can tell, uh, a particular reading of this verse has even influenced foreign policy towards the nation-state of Israel today. Um, and it can cause some Christians to have a fairly sharp kind of focus on Israel, right? If, you, if that's what this verse is saying, you can kind of... Uh, be looking to Israel for the kind of signs of the end, if you're familiar with that kind of way of thinking about it. Well, friends, there's a number of reasons. I, I, I don't think that this reading makes sense of Paul's thought in general uh, or actually what he says here in Romans 11. Uh, I, I don't think it can be sustained, although even if I'm wrong and there is a kind of large-scale conversion of the Jews, I'll be rejoicing with everyone else, okay? So praise God if that's... Happy to be wrong about that. I just don't think that's actually what Paul's teaching here. 
Um, and I'm not at, on my own here either. Um, as I mentioned before, there, though there are plenty of others who see it differently. So I take it, though, friends, this is not a core kind of gospel issue, one of those things that we can happily kind of uh, coexist with uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ. The second kind of position, the one that I adopt, and I, you know, if you're sort of thinking it through, I'd encourage you to adopt too, uh, is that this isn't actually talking about an unknown time in the future. Uh, what it's talking about is this ongoing process, um, this ongoing process throughout the whole time between Jesus' first and second coming, what the New Testament calls the last days. Um, this time between Jesus' first and second coming, this ongoing process that we kind of looked at before, that sort of process of hardening and being brought to jealousy. The nation's been brought in, Israel being brought to jealousy. I think what this is getting at uh, is a really just a description of that, that process, this ongoing process uh, of Jewish people being hardened, Gentiles being gathered in, and the Jewish people sort of looking at that being jealous of it and being regrafted back in, and the, the reason, one of the reasons I think that uh, there's a number of different reasons, uh, is that that little word uh, you can see it there in verse 26, a little little phrase, in this way, all Israel will be saved. In this way, all Israel will be saved. I think what Paul's saying here is this this process of what's happening with the Jewish people, that's the way God's going to save the true Israel, the faith, the Israel within Israel, the elect Israel. Remember Paul's driving concern here, friends. That's another kind of reason I think this is right. Remember Paul's driving concern is to show God's faithfulness and his trustworthiness. He has expanded his people to sweep up the whole world, right? That's what Jesus has done. He's sort of expanded his people to take in people from the whole world. But he hasn't forgotten Israel. He hasn't forgotten Israel. They'll be included the same way as everyone else will be, through faith in the Messiah, Jesus. And that's what he goes on to talk about, this deliverer who comes from Zion, who God will use to take their sins away in verse 26 to 27. And that process is going to be happening all the way up until the full number of Gentiles has come in, up until the, uh, the kind of end of the age when Jesus returns. And in that way, as that's all happening, in this mysterious way of hardening and jealousy and regrafting, all faithful Israel, all the elect within Israel will be saved. God is completely faithful and trustworthy to his people. All right, happy to sort of think more about that and uh, you can talk to me if you have uh, some concerns or wanted to chat about other ideas with that. Not a problem. Um, but friends, regardless of how we kind of land on that particular issue, uh, I think, it, as I said at the start, it would be a shame for us not to really, each of us, sit under the big picture of what's going on in these chapters, particularly chapter 9 to 11, the big picture of God's unfailing, unfailing purposes um, I just want to suggest three, sort of coming to the end of this, three uh, things that perhaps can, we can take away and uh, think through in response to this incredible chapter. Uh, I wanted to encourage us to look back, 
look forward and to look around. Okay, so <laughs> kind of three different responses to this chapter. Uh, looking back, when, what I mean by that is look back over the, the, what's come before in Romans. Romans chapters 1 to 8. Um, and we, I mentioned this already, so we won't spend a long time on it, but Romans 1 to 8 is all about the great and wonderful certainty and assurance that all people who have faith in Jesus can have, that they will never be separated from God's love, that they are united to Jesus by faith, that they are dead to sin, and that they are alive to God through Christ Jesus. This this incredible, um, uplifting, wonderful picture of assurance, this big view of God... And coming to the end of these chapters, I think what Paul wants, uh, a big part of why why these chapters are here, are to just hammer home that that is all totally true and trustworthy and we can entirely uh, depend on, not only on that, but behind that, underneath that and over that, on God himself, the God who brought all of that about. Paul wants us to have a big view of God, God's sovereignty over all history. He hasn't fallen asleep. He is working all things together for our good. So friends, as you look back over Romans 1 to 8, trust him. Trust him that that's all true. Um, as we look forward though, one of, the, one of the big things we kind of skimmed over in my Cook's tour through Romans 11, I skimmed over um, uh, one of the bits in the middle part of that chapter uh, where Paul talks about how all of this should lead Gentile Christians to have a deep Humility, a deep humility, a right, a right and reverent fear. Not fear kind of in the, in the sense of being anxious and uncertain about God and what he's going to do, but a right awe-filled fear of God. Salvation is always by grace. And Paul is saying to the Roman church, which had this mixture of Jewish and Gentile Christians who are struggling to get on, He's saying, you Gentiles have no right to look down your noses at your Jewish brothers and sisters. They actually are more naturally part of this tree than you are. So don't look down on them. Uh, And it sets the scene. Why I mention that is it really sets the scene looking forward to what Paul's going to go on to say over the rest of this letter in chapter 12. He kind of shifts again to to think more directly about and I'm really looking forward to getting into chapter 12 next week, where we start to look at what it looks like for us, as, or for Jesus' people, to live together in a way that's totally shaped by the gospel. Uh, he sets the scene for chapter 12. There's lots there, but fundamental to what, it, to what he says here, this strong grasp of God's grace that creates a humble people that rightly fears God and that clings to his kindness... That's kind of where he wants us to be before we read chapter 12, before we get into thinking about how we live together as God's people. That's where he wants every, all of Jesus' people to be, humbled by grace, humbled by grace, rightly fearing God, clinging to his kindness. You can look back, have assurance, look forward and kind of just get ready for next week. Um, but looking around today... Uh, kind of coming straight out of this chapter, I think. Uh, just one thought. Uh, grace means 
Friends, do you get this out of here, Grace? God, the reality of God's sovereign grace means that no heart, no heart is ever too hard for God to soften. No heart is ever too hard for God. Paul was filled with anguish for his people, the Jews, but he would never let that slip into mistrust of God. He would never let that slip into despair. He kept praying. He kept preaching. He kept trusting that God was, was even though it, for him it felt like he was Elijah, he kept trusting that God was regrafting natural shoots back into the tree. There's something very precious about that, I think, friends, that no heart is too hard for God to soften in his mercy. Um, perhaps you're here today and you maybe worry about that, even for yourself. Perhaps you, you are concerned that maybe your heart is too far gone for God. Uh, you've done too much that you think God would reject. Um, we heard last week, friends, the certain promise that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You're not too hard for God. He can bring you into his kingdom. He can graft you into his tree. No problem. Call on his name. Uh, but, but perhaps, friends, you, uh, for you, it's actually thinking about other people who may have hearts that are too hard and perhaps you're tempted to give up or to blame God, uh, to think that God has uh, sort of fallen asleep. Or, uh, friends, Paul's, I think what comes out uh, from this chapter uh, is Paul's persistence in continuing to pray, continuing to seek any opportunity to speak about the gospel with, with the people that he loved. And that, I think, is a good reminder, encouragement for us. All right, we've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? Um, it is uh, really a magnificent chapter, though, about God's overflowing kindness and mercy. But, uh, what I thought might be good, friends, is it maybe another uh, appropriate way for us to finish is for, maybe together to... Uh, these words will come up on the screen, verses 33 to 36. Um, having gone through this, and, and after we say this, um, we're going to sing a bit of a song that uh, I'll introduce in a minute, but um, uh, in kind of response, a song that really um, uh, impresses upon us um, that we are only in God's tree by his grace. Um, but let's use this as an opportunity to reflect on the greatness of God, uh, to reflect on the incredible kindness he's shown in bringing wild weeds into his tree um, and to fuel our faith and trust in the trustworthy God. So I invite you to read it aloud with me from verse 33. Oh, the depth and the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen.